It's podcasting time. My name is Jonathan Isaacson, and this is the Just Another Jerk podcast. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you're probably related to me, or maybe you worked with me at my previous university. I think that's about the only people I can think of that have probably heard this thing yet. And I hope you've liked at least something I've podcasted. And I hope to build this thing up a little bit. So like, share, leave a review, whatever, on whatever sort of podcasting service you're listening on. Today, I'd like to share what I hope will be the start of an occasional series here on Just a Jerk. Just another jerk. Um, This is a long one I got for you today. I'm still workshopping the title for this series within a podcast, but something like everything you've never wanted to learn about Japanese history or Japan, the stuff you've never heard about. I mean, yeah, those titles are kind of terrible, but like I say, I'm still workshopping it. So today's a bit of a long one, um, but that's that's what I want to talk about. I, I, I like history. I've been in Japan. I've learned a lot of things about a lot of places that, well, you know, you've never heard about. And I've got the idea down. I want to share the stories of Japanese history that people outside of Japan are likely to have never come across. I mean, heck, a lot of the ideas I have for this series are things that many Japanese people don't really know much about, if at all. Some of them, I'm sure they do, but some of them, probably not. So that's the idea. And we'll see how far it goes and how often these things happen, because They're going to take a little more research. I mean, this one is long. It's got a lot of things to talk about. But yeah. Anyway, let's indulge the history major in me and talk about rather obscure bits of Japanese history. So here we go. Yubari. A name that doesn't mean a whole lot to most people outside Japan. If you're a fan of Quentin Tarantino, that may, that name might somehow sound familiar. Um, think about Kill Bill, a movie that I've never seen myself. I know a little bit about it. One thing I know is that in it, the Japanese actress named uh, Kuriyama Chiaki, she plays the role of a schoolgirl assassin. And her name in the film? Gogo Yubari. So yes, there is a connection. Yubari holds an international film festival that at one time was actually pretty large. Tarantino attended the festival in 1993 uh, with the film Reservoir Dogs. And there's a story that he wrote at least part of the script for Pulp Fiction while staying in his hotel in Yubari. True? Who knows? But maybe, maybe not. For whatever reason... Though the name of the town stuck with him and found its way into Kill Bill. So just a little uh, kind of side note about a coincidence that probably no one else listening to this is going to care about. Probably no one else in the world is going to care about. But, you know, these things, these are the connections that my brain makes. So Yubari, the town next to Yubari is called Kuriyama. The family name of the actor who played Gogo Yubari Kuriyama. So another side note about uh, Kuriyama, Kuriyama Chiaki, she starred in the Japanese movie Battle Royale, uh, a film that Tarantino has said that he really likes. So there you go, a little bit of film history that, again, probably not really that important, but 
like I say, the name U-Body shows up in Kill Bill. So how did this small town in the middle of Hokkaido, the northernmost of Japan's big four, big four islands, end up with an international film festival? So let's hop into the Wayback Machine, back into the 19th century, the 1870s to be precise. Hokkaido was the last of the big four islands of Japan to be incorporated into Japan proper. While the southernmost tip of the island, the areas around Hakodate and Matsumai, uh, look at a map, so the, that area, that was directly under Yamato Japanese daimyo, ethnic Japanese warlord control, starting in the 15th century. And while this was the case, much of the island was left more or less alone for the Ainu, the indigenous population, to continue on their continue on with their own culture, their own language, and their own ways for several hundred years. I mean, of course, this is hugely, hugely, hugely oversimplifying the history of Hokkaido and Ainu, uh, the Ainu stories about them. That'd probably make a good podcast episode or two in and of themselves. Um, so maybe we'll get there at some point, but that's not today's story. So yeah, Hokkaido was Japanese territory, kinda, sorta, for a few hundred years until the mid-1800s, when settlers from all over the country were sent to the north to more firmly kind of establish Japanese control over the island, you know, establishing sort of a dual cultural system with Yamato and Ainu coexistence. Of course, I'm just kidding, because it was all at the expense of Ainu culture. The Ainu people were treated horribly, and their culture and language were completely, well, not completely, but almost completely obliterated, like many indigenous cultures, um, the culture is still being preserved somewhat, but the language is in a really bad way. And there are some attempts at preserving, but you know I'm I'm pretty pessimistic about the chances. And again, that's another podcast. Maybe we can talk about it um, some other time. So, but anyway, our story today: there are all these ethnically Japanese people coming to Hokkaido. And one thing people in uh, people find in abundance in Hokkaido is coal. Now, Japan didn't have tons of coal fields at this point. I mean, there were some down in Kyushu, which is the island at the complete opposite end of the country from Hokkaido. Uh, if you look at a map, Hokkaido is kind of in the top right, and Kyushu is down at the bottom left. Um, and if you've heard about uh, Gunkanjima, it's proper name is Hashima. It's an island that at one time was the most, one of the most densely populated places on earth. That's down off the coast of Kyushu. And Kyushu had quite a few coal mines that were open much earlier than Hokkaido's. The Kyushu, the mines were open in the 1700s and early 1800s, before Hokkaido was really fully integrated into Japanese uh, culture and society. So these, the, the settlers come up to Hokkaido, and a huge coal field was discovered in central Hokkaido, and it's called the Ishikari Coal Field. And Yubari, today's topic, is right at the center of that coal field. Coal was discovered within the area that would become Yubari in 1888, but of course at this point it wasn't called Yubari. Now a funny thing about Yubari's name funny not funny hmm not funny haha is that it's not a japanese name 
at least not in the way that town names are in much of the country. With many of the towns in Hokkaido, you've already included, the name derives from Ainu words. So while the Ainu culture and language got mostly obliterated, they, their, their words were used for the names of towns, including Sapporo. Sapporo is not really a Japanese name in, in the same way. So I've seen a couple of different theories, uh, very similar theories, though, uh, as to the origin of the name of you for you, buddy. Um, either Yuparo, which is something like place of a mineral spring, or Yuparo, which is the source of a hot spring. So something about it being the location of some sort of spring water. Uh, so yeah, those kind of get morphed into U-body. One of those gets morphed into U-body through, you know, Jap- Japanification, Japaneseification of Ainu words. So in the late 1800s, coal was found in large quantities and very quickly U-body began to grow. In 1891, there were 307 people living in U-body. Ten years later, 1901, that number was nearly 11,000, and it was continuing to grow. U-body saw the development of major coal mining operations, as did most of the surrounding towns. Uh, two major companies owned no, no fewer than seven mines in U-body. Uh, the first of them to open was the Hokkaido Colliery and Railway Company, uh, known in Japanese by the shortened form of the company name. Uh, and I'll, This is what I'll refer to it as Hokutan. Hokutan was one of the main uh, coal mining companies in Hokkaido. Um, so Hokutan operated the uh, U-body mine starting in 1890. So that's why that boom, that very sudden boom in uh, population from 1891 to 1901. So that was followed, the, the 1890 mine was followed in 1905 by Hokutan's uh, Mayachi mine. And in 1906, Mitsubishi opened the U-body, the O-U-body mine, sorry. There's lots of U-bodies here. So Mitsubishi opened the O-U-body mine in 1906. More would follow with new mines opening in 1937, 1966. And um, the last major new mine in U-body, the U-body Shintanko Mine, operated by Hokutan, opened in 1970. That one, uh, while the newest of U-Body's major mining operations, would also be instrumental in the death of U-Body's coal industry. Oh, spoiler, I guess. Uh, Japan's coal mining industry is dead, um, as is the coal mining industry in a lot of countries. Um, but yeah, J- J- U-Body plays a big role in the death of, Je- of Japan's coal mining. So U-Body kept having new mines opening for nearly eight decades. And all of that coal required some way to transport it to where people needed it. So U-Body was served by multiple train lines. You had uh, JNR, Japan National Rail. You had the U-Body Tetsudo. Uh, you had Mitsubishi had their own line up to their, uh, their own train line up to their mine. And the population kept growing almost this entire time. Not the entire time, but most of it. Um, U-Body's official census data shows the population peaking in early 1960. 
with a total of 116,908 people living in 25,156 households. So clearly, there are families here in Ubadi. It's not a mining town like mining towns in the Old West and in the U.S., like, say, California or maybe up in Alaska. It's not that kind of a mining town. It's a coal mining town. So these are families. Say so these are well-established mining communities, and these are all over central Hokkaido. Yubari, uh, over the mountain in Horonai, Mikasa, Bibai. So at its biggest, Yubari had over 20, I think something like 25, 26 elementary schools. There were 10 junior high schools, six senior high schools. I mean, there were over a dozen train stations spread out throughout the valleys that make up the city, with populations growing up around each little, uh, each, each station area, each mine kind of had its own neighborhood. It was, by the standard of the time and place, a pretty prosperous place. Now, you I mean prosperous as far, in, you know, insofar as a coal mining town can be. I mean, obviously, you have some stratification with the the, you know, the, the management and the owners and then the workers, but by, by, you know, by, by the standards of the day and of the, of the place, it was a fairly prosperous place. Now, Ubari uh, covers an area that is roughly the size of New York City, and it stretches out over two large valleys, one along the Ubari River and another along the Shihorokabets River which is a tributary of the Ubadi River, and they kind of, they come to a V, they come uh, in the middle of Ubadi, near actually one of, one of the smaller mines. And while 117,000 people in the area of New York City doesn't really seem like all that much, it is important to remember that a lot of the area is very rugged mountains. Uh, the valleys of Ubadi were filled with houses and apartments up and down the hills. I've seen pictures, and they just go as high as they can, just up these steep walls, almost, that are just full of houses and, and apartments. Company, I'm sure a lot of company, uh, dormitories, things like that, too. And those neighborhoods, they had festivals. They were filled with stores and businesses and lots of people. And the chief industry, I mean, the only industry, really, were the mines, all in all, there were more than 30 major mining operations in this part of Hokkaido, starting in 1879 um, and then opening pretty regularly, you know, every 5-10 years a new mine, all the way up to the Shintanko mine in Yubari opened in 1970. And that's the last of the Ishikari coal field mines to be opened. And by the time Shintanko was opened, at least 11 of the 30, more than 30 mines in the Sorachi, that's the area that's on top of the Ishikari coal field. So of those 30 mines in the Sorachi region, uh, 11 of the mines had already closed by 1970. So coal was already starting to see a slowdown as other fuel sources, primarily uh, oil, crude oil, began to see an increase. But coal wasn't entirely dead. Japan ran coal-powered uh, trains until 1975. Appropriately enough, the last coal-powered steam locomotive operated in Hokkaido. Uh, so coal wasn't completely dead when the Shintanko mine opened in 1970. 
But by this point, the writing was on the wall. After the peak of nearly 117,000 people in 1960, Ubarty's population began to decline. So by the census in 1965, the population had dropped to only 85,000, already a major drop in just five years. But it would only get worse for the city. By 1970, when the last of the mines, the Shintanko mine, opened, Ubarty was down to a population of 70,000. By 1980, the census in 1980, it was only 40,000. Nearly two-thirds of the population had already disappeared in only 20 years, and the slide wasn't even over. In 1981, disaster struck. This wasn't the first time, of course. Coal mining is a dangerous business. Explosions, gas intrusions and outbursts, over the years, the various mines in Ubarty had seen a number of accidents and various and other kinds of, you know, just all sorts of disasters. In the early days, not surprisingly, the mines were very, very dangerous. 93 dead in an explosion in uh, 1908. Another explosion in 1912 killed 200. 1914, one accident, 423 dead. 1920, 209. And even in 1938, there's 161 killed in another explosion. So, I mean, I think we all know this. Coal mining is extremely dangerous, especially if you're down in tunnels. Extremely dangerous. Things started to become safer after this time period. I mean, comparatively, there were still accidents in the 1960s and, and you know, in the 50s and 60s and on. In the 1960s, uh, nearly 150 men died in various, in, in large mining accidents, explosions, cave-ins, those kind of things. And I'm sure there must have been scores more killed in more mundane, small-scale um, accidents. You know, just a small cave-in that killed one or two people, mining uh, machine accidents. Coal mining is dirty, dangerous work. But new technologies were making it safer and required fewer men to be down in the mine. Of course, I'm not being sexist here by saying men at this time and in this place, all coal miners were men. That's just the way things operated. So, uh, yes, throughout the 70s, Ubarty didn't see any major mining accidents. I'm, I'm sure there were lots and lots of smaller ones, just one, two, five men here, there, but nothing where you have the hundred men at a time getting killed in a major explosion or anything. So throughout the 70s, say no major accidents, probably a combination of improved technology and, and knowledge, but was probably also likely aided by a decline in the number of miners down in a smaller number of mines. So the U-Body mine, the very first one opened in the town, finally closed in 1977. Two other major mines also closed in the 70s as well. But that still left three major operating mines at the close of the 70s. Of course, there were still accidents, in part due to the pressure to extract as much coal as possible, because like I say, coal wasn't completely dead yet. And that brings us to the Yubari Shintanko. And so that 
That name is Japanese for Yubari New Coal Mine. It opened, well, they started work on it in 1970, operated, and it's operated by the Hoktan Company, the same company that operated the first coal mine, the one that closed in 1977. So, yeah, so Hoktan opens the new mine, and while Japan's need for coal was beginning to decrease, there was still a call for it, and the Shintanko mine uh, opened with the newest technology. The mine did have its share of small-scale incidents that claimed the lives of miners. Uh, five people, di- five miners died from methane gas in 1975. Uh, another five lost their lives in two separate cave-ins in 1981. In fact, uh, the seam, the coal seam that the miners at the Shintanko were mining apparently had a much higher methane content than a lot of the other seams in the area, upwards of three times as much. So it was a pretty dangerous seam to be mining. Uh, the seam was also somewhat prone to cracking and slipping, making both methane uh, methane poisoning and cave-ins a real danger. Uh, mine investigators would later report that methane sensors were sounding almost constantly. Even so, the miners were pushed to continue despite potentially deadly amounts of methane gas in the mine. And then came October 1981. At 12.41 on October 16th, with 838 men down in the mine, a team, uh, there was a team of excavators over 800 meters below the surface. They were three kilometers from the elevator. They were excavating a new section of the northern part of the mine. And there they hit a massive methane pocket, setting off alarms all over the mine, including up in the sur- up on the surface in the mine offices. Orders were given for the men below to return to the surface immediately. All the workers in the other parts of the mine, remember these are massive, massive coal mines with dozens of kilometers of tunnels, all the workers in the other sections of the mine evacuated safely. However, there were 160 men in the northern area of the mine, where the methane gas is coming from. A rescue team uh, made up both of men from Yubari and from the neighboring Horonai, which is another large mining community. They were assembled and 50 men went down to search for the men still trapped underground near the methane. 77 of those 160 were able to evacuate to safety either on their own or with the help of the rescue team. And that still left 83 men underground. And unfortunately, these 83 men would never leave the mines alive. The rescue team was able to evacuate 33 bodies, and they confirmed 10 more dead miners that they were unable to carry to the surface, and that left 40 miners unaccounted for. The 43 that were confirmed dead already, so the 33 they brought out plus the 10 that were still in the mine that were confirmed dead, They had died from a combination of inhaling too much methane gas as well as there were also uh, fine coal dust because blasting had, after all, been happening that very morning because they were trying to open a new tunnel. And so you have, say, that that, that was around shortly after lunchtime. And at 11.30 that night, a fire broke out in the mine. The rescue team, which had... 
they had been sent down without oxygen masks. And an additional 10 men were now missing. So now, with 50 men unaccounted for and the bodies of 10 fallen workers still in the mine, the, the company had a secondary disaster in its hand. A fire in a coal mine is, of course, nearly unstoppable. As long as the mine shaft is open, oxygen is, oxygen is getting in, and the ground itself is the fuel. Some coal seam fires have been burning for over a hundred years. So the Hukton company had a real quandary on their hands. How to put out the fire? And what about those 50 men? So early in the morning on the 17th, the company decided that the best plan of action would be to flood the tunnel to limit the damage to an absolute minimum. And to quote, well, translate the Hokkaido Shimbun newspaper. The company met with the union and the families of the missing men to explain their plan, which, of course, the plan was not well met by the families and the union. They accused the companies of killing the men without caring about them. And I, I can't find it anymore, but I remember a while ago I watched a news clip from the time. And it showed the meeting, like, and the, and, but not the whole meeting, but parts of the meeting between the company and the families. And the anger and the fear of the families, mostly wives, is just absolutely gut-wrenching. So in the face of this backlash, the company withdrew the plans and sent the rescue team back into the mine, uh, where they were able to locate one more dead minor, one more victim. However, by the 18th, so this is about two days after the start of, of the disaster, by the 18th, the fire was still burning, the mine was filling up with black smoke and it was getting very, very hot. And on top of that, the combination of fire and methane was causing small explosions. And so with no more progress seeming likely, the rescue, the rescue operation was called off again, around noon on the 18th, so about 48 hours now since the beginning of the crisis. The company then sealed the tunnels and air vents in an attempt to deprive the fire of its oxygen, and they again considered the option of flooding the mine to extinguish the fire. On the 21st, so now we're about five days since the start of the incident, the company felt that any chance for survival of the miners down in the mine was was gone. They again pleaded with the families of the now 49 unaccounted for men to begin to, to, to allow them to begin to flood the mine. And again, the families were furious. The company president, a man named Hayashi Chiaki, addressed the families directly, and he said to them, in the face of this great anger, he said to them, I humbly ask that you give their lives. And it's, it's really hard to convey the nuances of what he said because Japanese has some very highly structured, highly regulated registers and how you speak humbly, how you speak honorifically. And the president of the company was coming to these families and using the absolute most humble language he could possibly use to ask the families for their permission to flood the mines to extinguish the fire. And the next day, 
um, representatives from the management of the company went to each individual family and they received the permission from each family, one at a time, to flood the mine. At 9.30 in the morning of the 23rd, so now a week, on the morning of the 23rd, a res the rescue team entered one last time and placed flowers, chrysanthemums and gladiolus, in honor of the men who died and were missing. Water was then pumped from a nearby river into the mine, and at 1.30 in the afternoon, the sirens at Ubari City Hall and all the schools and other places in town sounded, and the entire community observed a moment of silence. And it wasn't until nearly a half year later that the final victim's body was recovered. In total, 93 men lost their lives in what was Japan's third worst mining disaster since the end of World War II. In the aftermath of the accident, company president Hayashi Chiaki resigned from the company and attempted suicide unsuccessfully. The company would go on to pay compensation and condolence money to the families of the victims. Um, some families su uh, sued the company and they settled out of court for well over a million yen, which is only about uh, $1 million U.S. I mean, that's 1981 money, but still not a whole lot of money. Uh, other cases were brought to court, things like criminal negligence and the like, but uh, they were all dismissed for lack of evidence. The Shintanko mine, while not immediately closed after the incident, never really was able to truly reopen. The mine was officially closed on October, uh, I don't remember, sorry, in October of 1982. I don't know what day, shouldn't have said on October, in October 1982, one year after the accident. Hoktan, the parent company um, of the mine, shuttered its last remaining mine in Ubari in 1987. So Hoktan now is out of Ubari. But they, continued, they did continue to operate mines in other nearby towns until 1995. And I've actually seen that coal mine that closed in 1995. It's still used for something, but I don't remember what. Not coal mining, obviously. As an industry, coal mining in Japan was unable to capitalize on the oil shock of the 1980s, largely due to the Shintanko disaster. Any goodwill the industry might have been able to harness as an alternative to oil was lost in this disaster. A few more high-profile coal mining accidents in 1984 and 1985 and other areas of Japan more or less sounded the death knell for Japanese coal mine. So Yubari's final coal mine, uh, the Mitsubishi operated Minami O Yubari mine, closed in 1989, leaving Yubari, a town built by and around coal mines without any coal mines. With the closing of U-Body's mines, the people left in droves. As I mentioned earlier, by 1980, when there were three sizable uh, coal mines still operating, U-Body had a population of about 40,000, well down from its peak of 117,000 in 1960. And it was around this time the city began trying to shift from being a coal mining town to a coal tourism town. A theme park was proposed near the site of the original, the OG 
Ubody Coal Mine, the one that opened back in the late 1800s and closed in 1977. The park would consist of a mining museum, amusement park, uh, there was going to be a ski resort, some hotels, kind of the, a big complex. The entire project was completed in 1983. They moved the, the, coal, the, the, the elevator that took all the, the miners up and down. They moved the elevator from Shintanko to the site of the museum where it still stands today. The amusement park itself, like the, the rides and whatnot, it was not large by standards of, say, Disneyland, but it was still a reasonably big park by the standards of 1980s Hokkaido. It had a roller coaster, Ferris wheel, water slides, go-karts. You know, it was a, a, a regional, a normal regional amusement park. But the population of U-Body kept dwindling. By the 1990 census, after all the mines had left, about 21,000 people lived in U-Body. That same year, the U-Body International Fantastic Film Festival began as another attempt to shift U-Body's economy and, well, everything about the place away from coal and towards something else. And for a while, it was, it was looking pretty good. You know, as I said at the beginning of this, Quentin Tarantino showed up in 1993. John Voight and his then 15-year-old daughter, Angelina Jolie, were at the first festival in 1990. While it was certainly wasn't, it wasn't going to solve U-Body's financial problems, you know, all... I mean, after all, a film festival is a fairly short event, you know, it's a week or two. It did bring some name recognition to the town. In 2004, the festival drew 27,000 fans to U-Body. 2004 was, incidentally, the first, was the year I moved to Japan, and U-Body's population was now down to a little under 14,000 people. By 2006, it was clear that the theme park was no longer financially viable and was actually a drain on the city's finances. So it was closed temporarily, or at least they said it was temporary. The park was sold off to a company that runs various entertainment venues around Hokkaido mostly, uh, ski resorts, hotels, golf courses, the like. The company reopened the two large hotels in the ski resort, and uh, those said those were also part of the package. And the theme park never opened its gates again. It was permanently closed in 2008, right after Ubody declared its bankruptcy. That's right. Ubody as a city went bankrupt. Saddled with several hundreds of million in debt, a declining and aging population, Ubody was left with no choice but to declare bankruptcy. Due to the bankruptcy, the film festival, which is backed financially by the city, was canceled in 2007. The film festival did manage to make a comeback the following year, albeit in a scaled-back form, uh, and it's been running ever since, though it no longer really draws the big na names, especially internationally. Um, it's much more now focused kind of East Asia, so there's a lot of Korean directors and small-budget films that, sh that go to U-Body at this point. And so where does all this leave U-Body today? The number of people in town is still falling. As of December 2019, there were fewer than 8,000 people. If you go to U-Body today, there are entire districts that have been erased from the map. Sometimes there are still houses and businesses standing, some with former residents' goods still in them, some empty. 
Sometimes all that's left of a neighborhood are the streets and the telephone poles. The houses are all gone. All the train lines are gone. The Yubari Tetsudo line with its Nishikizawa Park that had miniature Shinkansen. The park, the park closed in 1970 and the train line halted operations in 1975. The tracks were turned into a bike path, but that has also been abandoned, probably because there are three tunnels. Three, I think it's three tunnels. Yeah, three tunnels that would have needed constant attention and care to, main, to maintain so they didn't fall on a biker. I've biked and or cross-country skied as much of the path as is possible, up to the tunnels, going from both directions. And there's no easy access to where the park was, where, where Nishikizawa Park was. So that's what I was always trying to find, but I could never get through all the way through because the tunnels are boarded up and closed off. Uh, the Mitsubishi train line. It ceased operations in 1987, shortly before the Minami Oyubari mine closed. There's still an old steam locomotive at Minami Oyubari station, so there is some sign that there was a train line here, but... That's it. The JR train, which is the, the descendant of the Japan National Rail, Japan Rail train, that ran up toward the amusement park, the site of Yubari's first coal mine, that stopped running exactly one year ago as I record this. The last train on that, tra on that line ran on March 31st, 2019, one year ago to the day. And the Coal History Museum, the ski resort, the hotels, they're still there. The old downtown area near the hotels has murals painted all over that look like old-time movie posters. So things like the old western, Shane, or the Elvis film, Blue Hawaii, things like that. You know, a nod to the film festival. The amusement park, more or less gone. Sold for scrap, mostly. There is there is a, a, a confectionery, like, like the, they make uh, sweets and candies and things that's on the grounds. And that's another thing that Ubari still has. They've got their melons. So Ubari is famous for its melons now. So if you if that if people don't think of coal anymore, if you ask people 50 years ago, Ubari 60 years ago, they would have said coal. Now they will say melons, which is Japanese for cantaloupe, muskmelon type melons. That's another thing Ubari has. And if you ever see, they have a mascot, which is melon, guma, melon bear, which is a, a bear that is, his head's a melon. It's very strange. It's very Japanese. So, yeah, Yubari. When I lived near you, when I lived in central Hokkaido, I would regularly cycle through the town. And sometimes I'd wander into places. I, I wandered onto the grounds of the old um, amusement park. But that was now more than five years ago, and I'm sure that there's less stuff there now. I'm sure more things have disappeared from U-Body. You can still find abandoned schools. Because while the U-Body once had over 20 elementary schools, 10 junior highs, half a dozen high schools, now it has one of each. U-Body is well on its way to being more or less completely abandoned. And the population is skewed very old, which only exacerbates its problems. Which leaves us one last question. Why did this happen to Yubari? I mean, sure, the easy answer is that the city was built around a single industry, and when that industry went bust, so went the city. But 
Other cities around it were otherwise the same, built entirely around coal, and they haven't seen quite as dramatic a decline as Yuvari. Why, why was the amusement park ultimately a boondoggle? Why didn't the people come? I mean, some of it is timing. Japan's economic bubble burst and things like amusement parks just couldn't hack it anymore. I mean, there are dozens of abandoned amusement parks here in Japan. So those civic leaders who thought they could spend their way into making Yubari successful in its post-mining incarnation, well, they're certainly partially to blame for not planning better. But, I mean, how could they have seen the the end of the bubble unless, well, they had really been paying attention to new economics, they probably would have seen it, but that's neither here nor there. I also, though, think that Yubari's, Yubari's location is partially to blame. So those other cities and towns that were products of coal, they are on the road to somewhere. Most of them are not too far off the main road between Sapporo and Asahikawa, which are the two largest cities in Hokkaido. Yubari is not. I mean, part of the city, I mean, not the main part, but not the area where the, not the area where all the mines and the people were. There is part of the city on the main road between Sapporo and Obihiro, which is another largish Hokkaido city. But for the most part, if you look at a map, Yubari is tucked in the mountains on roads to nowhere. You don't just end up in Yubari. You have to be planning on going there. But it's definitely worth the time and the effort to find it. I mean, yes, it can be sad to see the abandoned houses in the mine shafts. I mean, there are still plenty of those if you know where to look. But there's also something really magnetic about the place. It keeps drawing me back to it. I don't I can't explain it really. And I wish I still lived in central Hokkaido so I could go visit again. Well, that's where we're going to stop the story of you, buddy, and everything that you never wanted to know about Japanese history for today. So please remember to subscribe, rate, review, share, force it on a friend, whatever it is you can do to help this podcast out. You can find the Twitter for this podcast at Just Another Cast, and you can email questions, comments, suggestions, whatever, to Just Another Jerk Podcast at gmail.com. So on that note, I'm a bounce. Peace.